this morning, I, I feel as though we almost should just take a little break, <laughs> pause. Man, worship with you guys this morning has been just absolutely beautiful. What a great day it is today. I want to encourage you to grab a Bible, if you would, and go ahead and just find your place in the book of Romans. I'll be in various places throughout the book of Romans. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to kind of follow along in the Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. You can grab one of those pew Bibles and it'll open up to page 1012. That'll get you to Romans chapter 1. For those of you that would prefer this morning, I'll have all the verses on the screens as well. Here we gather. Every Easter, we gather together to celebrate the greatest event in human history, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And if that doesn't get the, the energy flowing in you today, then I pray that today is the day that God would grant you life in lieu of death. The pivotal issue of the Christian faith rest and resides in the reality that Jesus Christ is alive. He lives. And so, in the moment following his death at Calvary, the disciples, they were discouraged. At the cross, the disciples were downcast, delusioned, despondent. They were defeated and felt dejected. But on that resurrection morning when a few women went to the tomb carrying spices so that they might anoint the body of our Lord, they only arrived to discover that God had raised Him from the dead. And in that instant, everything changed. The bonds of sin were broken. The finality of death was decimated. Because Jesus has risen from the grave, Hope has replaced despair. We can have peace in lieu of hostility. There's life in, in place of death. So as we gather today, perhaps the greatest thing that we could do together is to reflect and to consider what is our response to the resurrection. How do you respond to the resurrection? This morning, I think there are four options for us to consider. Three of them aren't good. One of them is very good. When thinking about the resurrection, are you troubled by the resurrection? To be troubled, are you uh, frightened or fearful of the implications that come with the resurrection of Jesus? Which means, if Jesus has risen from the dead, then that fact that reality would confirm that Jesus Christ is the living Lord. And so, if the resurrection is true, right, and He's our living Lord, then that means that we must subject ourselves unto Him. Because He is Lord. He is King. He is Master. He is Ruler. But for some people, the thought of the resurrection frightens them because they are afraid of bending the knee of submission and giving their life up to someone else. But may you know, we're all enslaved to something or someone. 
We all. Scripture testifies to that reality. Romans chapter 6, verse number 16 says that you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Which means we all have common, uh, uh, common issues in this room. And the issue is for all of us is that we are all slaves unto a master. Either we are slaves to sin, which results in death, or we're a slave to obedience, that's trust and faith in Jesus Christ, which leads us to righteousness. Every single person is enslaved to something or someone. The beautiful reality is we get to choose who our master is. One master leads to death. The other one leads to everlasting life. So this morning, as we reflect upon the resurrection, are you frightened by that? That, does that? Does that cause you to worry about the implications of what the resurrection means? So some people are, are troubled by the resurrection. Others will seek to just reject the truth of the resurrection. For many people, the belief that somebody can come back from the dead is simply beyond their acceptance much less the implications that come with the the reality of Jesus being alive. So for some people, they will reject the evidence that affirms that Jesus lives. They reject it because they just simply can't make themselves agree to it. Scripture testifies in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Verses 3 through 8, it says, For I delivered to you as of first important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all of the apostles. And last of all, as the one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Paul's giving testimony of the fact that uh, the appearance of the resurrected Lord was experienced by hundreds of individuals. Hundreds of individuals that gave their life in in, in light of the glorious truth that Jesus Christ lives. So some people are troubled. Some people will just flat out try to reject the resurrection. Others will work very hard to ignore the resurrection. For most people, today is nothing more than a, a gathering of families. For most people today is about eating baked ham and mashed potatoes. It's hiding or dying eggs and hoping that you remember where you hid those eggs. For most people, it's about eating chocolate bunnies. Pete marshmallows. Anybody still eat those things? Raise your hand. Are you a peep marshmallow lover? 
congratulations to like six or seven. I mean, those things are disgusting. You know they made that into a cereal now? Some people will refuse to consider the seriousness of the situation. They will refuse to pay any attention to the reality of the resurrection. The vast majority of the people will go through today and never pause a moment to give serious thought and consideration to the victory and the sacrifice that was made at Calvary. But that's most people. The question for us to consider is, what about you? Are you troubled by the resurrection? Do you reject the resurrection? Do you work hard to ignore the implications of the resurrection? May you understand that the only proper response to the resurrection is to believe that God raised him from the dead and to confess him as Lord of your life. Romans chapter 10, verse number 13, says that for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's really not much confusion as to what that verse actually says. In the Greek, whoever means whoever. means anyone. Each person. Everyone. Whoever. Whoever includes any person, any nationality, any race, any color, from any background, or from any family. Whoever. Whoever. Whether they be rich or they're poor. Whether they're good or bad. Whether they're moral or immoral. Whoever. Whoever. Whether they're just or unjust. Whether they're popular or they're not so popular. Whoever. Whoever. Whether they're mean or nice. Whether they're ugly or beautiful. I promise I'm not making eye contact with anybody. (laughs) Whether they're fat or skinny. Whoever. Whoever means whether they're Republican or Democrat. Whoever. Whoever means whether they're sick or they're healthy. Whether they're woke or unwoke. Whether they've been vaccinated or unvaccinated. Whoever. Do you get the picture? Whoever means no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, God can save you. Whoever. Again, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, look at Romans chapter 10, verse number 9. There it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise. That's the guarantee. So let me ask the question. Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Do you believe it? Now, do you believe it in a biblical sense? See, to believe in the Bible means more than just simply agreeing with our minds. It goes beyond our minds. It's more than just agreeing up here in our head that something is true. The text says, look at it, To believe in your heart. It says to believe in your heart, not to believe in your head. 
Believe in your heart. So why is it that we're to believe in our heart? What does that mean? I don't understand what the Bible is talking about when it makes mention of your heart. Believe in our heart because the heart affects everything that we do. So we find places in Scripture like Proverbs chapter 4, verse number 23, where it tells us to watch over your heart with all diligence, from, for from it flow the spring of life. There's other translations that I think render this verse a little bit more clearly, and so I'll share a couple of them with you. The ESV, or the English Standard Version, uh, translates it like this. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Vigilance, sorry. For from it flow the spring of life. Then the NIV, or the New International Version, says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. I, I should have put the New Living Translation up there because it says something to the effect that uh, above all else, guard your heart for it affects everything that you do. So to believe in your heart means that we believe so strongly that God raised Jesus from the dead that we are willing to commit our lives to Him and for Him. And you understand that belief requires commitment. Belief leads to action. Where there's no commitment and there's no action, there's no salvific belief. Let me paint the picture this way. Suppose you're walking along a path and you uh, come to a deep canyon. And in order to get from one side of the canyon to another, you have to come across what might be considered a rather shady footbridge. Now you can look at that footbridge and you can inspect it from a distance and you might believe that it will hold you, right? You might even take some time to watch people of the same body size and math, mass walk across that bridge and believe in your mind that that bridge will hold you. But up to this point, that belief in the bridge is only in your head. It's only in your head. So when do you really believe in your heart that that bridge will hold you up? Will you really believe it in your heart when you're willing to put your life to it and begin to walk across that bridge yourself? Now that means that belief leads to action. Belief affects our behavior and so i want to help you to understand what it means to to believe that god raised jesus from the dead i'll give you a three-step process if you will to saving belief step number one is to hear the good news it's the first thing to hear the good news romans chapter 10 verse number 14 says how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Okay, congratulations. Step one is being fulfilled in your presence today. So we go from step one, hearing the good news, to step number two. Step number two is a mental assent, or it's a mental agreement. See, upon hearing the good news, a person must agree to the message of the good news. 
However, simple agreement mentally isn't enough. Why? Why isn't it just enough to acknowledge it in our mind? Well, the reality is, mere agreement with a truth does not necessarily lead to action or change in our lives. A a, a few examples. You can know the truth that smoking cigarettes is foolish and destructive to your body. And yet that belief hasn't changed the behavior of you sucking on the stupid stick. You still do it. You can believe that the law says that they're going to post signs on the road that tell you the maximum speed to which you should be traveling. So you can believe that there are speed limits, and yet that belief doesn't change your driving habits of doing whatever you want, however fast you want to go, based upon however late you are for wherever it is you're supposed to go. Belief of it didn't change your behavior. And so a person can know the truth and yet still do nothing with the truth that they know. You can know that Jesus is the Savior of the world, And that knowledge still never allowing that knowledge to lead you to a decision to submit and surrender your life unto him. So the three steps, we must hear the good news. We must agree with that good news. And then number three, we must make a commitment. We must make a commitment. God wants more than a simple acknowledgement of his existence. He wants us to submit and to surrender our lives unto him and to live our lives in accordance to his word and his will. May we know that there is a huge gap that exists between God and his holiness and us and our sinfulness. There's a massive gap, a gap that cannot be overcome on our own efforts No matter how much good we try to do, we can never do enough good to overcome the gap that exists between God and us. But the good news is that God has bridged the gap. He sent His only begotten Son to to remove the penalty of death. Jesus has become that bridge from death unto life. So to believe in Jesus means to commit ourselves to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Notice back in Romans chapter 10, verse number 9. I'll put it back on the screen. Notice how it states that we must confess Jesus as what? Lord. We must confess Jesus as Lord. It doesn't tell us to confess Jesus as Savior. All too often, we use those terms and we think that they're interchangeable, but they're not. They're they're not the same thing. Scripture tells us that we're to confess Jesus as Lord. May you know that Jesus, in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as Lord around 600 times. In the entire Bible, He's referred to as Lord more than 7,000 times. When it comes to references or identifying Jesus as Savior, in the New Testament, 
that occurs about 24 times. In all of Scripture, it's 37 times. Understand the significance here? Think about it. In the New Testament, every time that Jesus is mentioned as Savior, there are at least 25 references to Him being Lord. In all of Scripture, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, for every reference of, of Jesus as Savior, there are at least 189 references to His Lordship. Have you ever wondered why we put so much more emphasis on Savior than we do Lord? Could it be that we are much more comfortable with the benefits of salvation rather than the requirements of submission? Let me be clear. Jesus cannot be your Savior until He is first and foremost, Lord of your life. Lordship comes first. And in order for Jesus to be our Savior, in order for Him to be our Lord, then we must repent of our sins and receive Him as Lord of our lives, as Master of who we are and what we become. It all begins with repentance. It's an odd word today, repentance. Sad reality is that there will be churches all across America that won't even speak the word of repentance today. It's as though that word has been removed from the vocabulary of a lot of churches. But, but rest assured, although it might be removed from some of the pulpits, it has not been removed from the word of God. You'll find repentance 969 times in the Scriptures. It is all throughout the Word of God. Think about it. Noah had a message of repentance to his generation. They ignored that message. They all died. Jonah had a message of repentance to his arch enemies, the adversaries. So he reluctantly declared that message of repentance. They heard it, they believed, and they were spared. Jesus, Lord, Savior. The very first message from our Lord was the message of repentance. That's how he begins. The first sermon that he ever preached is contained within Matthew chapter 4, verse number 17. And he said, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The very first message was repentance. The very last message is not the Great Commission. A lot of times we think that's the last thing that Jesus had to say to us, contained within the scripture. It's an important thing that he says to us, but it's not his last message that's contained within the scripture. The last sermon of our Lord is actually contained in Revelation chapter 3. It was penned through John in the letters to the churches. And in his last letter, his final message, Revelation chapter 3, verse number 19, written to the church in Laodicea, he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So the first and the last message of our Lord and Savior 
was the message of repentance. But what is repentance? How are we to understand what that means? For many people, they understand repentance to mean a turning from sin. While, while that is true, it's not complete. That, 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 that's, that's a good partial answer, but it's not a full answer. You see, true biblical repentance includes both a turning from something and a turning to something else. So true biblical repentance is a turn from sin and a turn to Jesus. So repentance and faith could be understood as being two sides to the same coin. It is impossible for us to place our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior without first changing our minds and our attitudes about sin as well as who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Repentance has multi-level ramifications in our lives. It has intellectual, emotional, and volitional ramifications. I'll give it real quick. So intellectually, repentance is a change of view. It's a change of view. It's a recognition of sin as involving personal guilt, defilement, and helplessness. So we have a change of view of what sin is. So, so that's intellectually. Emotionally, repentance is a change of feeling. It, it manifests itself in a sorrow for sin committed against a holy and righteous God. But then, um, volitionally, repentance is a change of purpose. It's a change of purpose. It is an inward turning away from the pursuit of sin to a desire to walk in obedience to God and His Word. So repentance isn't just a turning from sin. No, repentance is a change of view, a change of feeling, and a change of purpose. True repentance always results in a change of action. Again, let me be clear. Jesus Christ cannot be your Savior unless He is first and foremost Lord. Scripture teaches us that a person who really believes something commits themselves to the thing that they profess to believe. If there's no commitment, there's no belief. There's no salvific belief. True belief always results and a commitment, a change of behavior. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you don't struggle. It doesn't mean that you still don't have to overcome a whole lot of sinful habits and stuff in life. It doesn't mean that at all. But it does change your view. It changes your purpose. It changes your feelings about sin. So I ask you from the beginning, do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? And if you believe, will you confess? Jesus as Lord of your life? Will you surrender everything unto him? Give him your life. In lieu of what Jesus did and accomplished for us, it is the most appropriate response to give unto him. Life for a life. 
May you experience the peace that only God can give through faith and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. May this Resurrection Sunday be a life-changing, an eternal life-changing day in your heart and in your lives. Let's pray. And as we pray, I want to encourage us in this moment that we need to be honest with ourselves and with God. One more time. Have you really put your life into the crucified hands of the one who died for you? I should have shared this earlier, but I'm reminded of John chapter 5 and verse number 24. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. A few thoughts for you to consider as we pray. Are you willing to accept the fact that you cannot do anything on your own in order to save yourself? Are you willing to accept God's solution? Are you willing to confess Jesus as Lord and to believe in your heart, not your head, but in your heart that God raised Him from the dead? Will you accept His offer of salvation and step over from death unto life? Do you believe? In the end, you're the only one that can answer that question. Father, I pray that in this moment, before we rush out of here to go and to do whatever it is that we have planned to do, that we would continue to pause, to reflect, to consider the ramifications of the resurrection of Jesus. In this room, there are countless souls who need to confess you as Lord. This room is also filled with disobedient children who need to repent from sin and and seek to walk in a freshness of their walk with you. That may this not just be a a few moments that we're in a hurry to, to get beyond, but in this moment, Father, may your Spirit move in and among us, revealing unto each one of us a decision that needs to be made. May you receive all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory in these next few moments. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. With a with a, an attitude of prayer, still where you're seated. Staff and I are going to be up here in the front. We'd love to just have a, a little time of prayer. If you'd like to make a decision, or you would like for one of us to pray with you or for you, we invite you to come. Do you believe? What's the one thing that God is expecting from you right now?